everyone, and welcome to episode number 323 of The Freelancer Show. This week on our panel, we have Eric Dietrich. Hey, everybody. And Jeremy Green. Hey, y'all. And Jonathan Stark. Hello. And I'm Reuven Lerner. And this week, we are going to be talking about getting started freelancing in your 40s. Although, for the purposes of argument, it can be slightly before, slightly after. Um, so I, I don't know about you guys. I started freelancing. I know, Jonathan, you started a little later on. But, like, I started freelancing basically, like, in my, I guess, mid-20s, like, when I was 25. And so I feel that I'm very lucky to have done that because I wasn't married, didn't have a mortgage, didn't have kids. It was just me. And if things go south, I go get a real job. But, like, <laughs> but there are people, and, and, like, still might happen. You never know. You never know. 20-some-odd years later. Um... But there are people who, midway through their careers, want to switch into freelancing, switch into consulting, and it's not always so easy or obvious what to do. So we're going to talk about that this show and figure out some strategies for doing that without upsetting the apple cart in your personal personal life and personal finances. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. So... Have, did any of you guys make that transition or have you all been doing this for sort of as long as I have? Um, um, so for me, I, uh, I started moonlighting, I guess, probably in my late twenties, early thirties. And then by the time I was 33, 34, I made the flip and left a job and, um, became a solo consultant. So that was about six years ago. Yeah. I went, I went to an age, I went from a full-time corporate job to a, an agency where I was, where I ended up learning how to sort of like with training wheels, learn how to freelance slash consult. And I was 35 when that happened. And then I went solo three years later when I was 38 and I was, uh, I wasn't single, but I didn't have kids yet. So the, it felt like, didn't feel like I had tons of responsibilities. I had a mortgage and stuff though. I was, I was halfway there. Yeah. I started a, an agency right out of college with a buddy and ran that for you know, 10 years or more. And then when we shut that down, uh, I started doing freelancing in my, I don't know, mid, mid to late thirties. Um, and you know, at that point, uh, was married, had a mortgage, uh, a lot of responsibilities. Um, and you know, for, for me, the, the agency we had been really doing so poorly that, uh, freelancing was just an immediate step up for me in terms of money to be made and, reduction of stress and like all sorts of things. It was kind of a weird situation. Um, but you know, I, I had a decade of agency work that I could point to as, Hey, I've done that. Um, and can help you. 
Yeah, that helped me a lot going to an agency first because going from in-house to, you know, in-house I developed this skill, at, you know, it was like a FileMaker developer at this uh, at Staples uh, and they're advertising agency and then I, I got fed up with it and I went solo and I could have a lot of I, I could have thought to go freelance but it didn't it I didn't uh, well it did occur to me but I was it wasn't an option that I seriously considered and I went to uh, one of the successful firms that did that sort of thing and it's a good thing I did because I didn't know what I, I thought I knew everything I knew nothing you know <laughs> it was just like it was a huge learning experience um, the, the whole idea of consulting and in fact, I didn't even have my, my skills weren't even anywhere near as good as I thought they were. I was super average and I thought it was amazing. Um, but you know, so I was on a huge learning curve for like three years. And then when I decided to go solo, it wasn't nerve wracking in the least because I had, I had all, I felt like I really knew at, you know, I, I actually knew how to do consulting and do contract development and all of the stuff that goes with that. But I also had spent time doing a lot of client management. I was writing proposals for the agency. So I had to do a, a lot of the business stuff. I was doing marketing for them, marketing activities, like speaking at conferences and writing in magazines. So I got a huge amount of experience in a pretty quick, pretty short time. And then, and then that's when I was like, that's when I realized our billing was nuts and, and we weren't going to switch at the agency. So I went solo and, and, it was like fine right out of the gate because I knew what I was doing. I, I brought a couple of clients with me, at least one. I think it was maybe just one or two clients with me. So it was a pretty smooth transition, actually, uh, it, going through that that three years of agency work first. You know, to, to sort of add on to a theme that's developing here, my wage employment also included a stop at an agency. And then early on in freelancing, I did a lot of subcontracting through agencies. So similarly, uh, I was kind of picking up that experience before I was completely alone and doing it. So, I mean, it sounds from you guys, and I, I know I've spoken to other people who have done this too, where they worked at an agency, sort of learned the ropes of how consulting projects work and how proposals work. And some agencies obviously include you more in the nitty gritty of the business stuff than others. And especially if you're there for a while, they'll probably include you as you get to be managing something. But, and so it sounds almost like an internship, right? Like where you go there, you learn the ropes and then you go off on your own. And I know that like when I had my consulting company, I knew people would leave me to go off on their own for a while. The thing is, um, did, did, did you guys encounter any sorts of non-competes or any restrictions on then going off on your own? Cause I know that can often be a stickler for people. Yeah, we, I definitely had that, but my, my, uh, boss was just the coolest guy on planet earth. So we just worked something out where, where it was just super transparent. And, uh, that was the kind of relationship it was. I was just like, look, I, I don't want to bill by the hour anymore. And he's like, eh, I don't know how we're going to do that. And I was like, all right, that's cool. Um, I'll just go solo and I've got all these clients. What do you want to do about it? Cause he didn't, you know, it would have been hard for him to switch them to someone else anyway. And it was like, ah, let's just split the money and, and that'll be cool. Um, so we just, we just worked something out that was sort of non-standard, but he was that kind of person. He was a super non-standard kind of person. So, nice. um, yeah, it just, it worked out really smoothly for me, but to Reuven's point that it, it won't, wouldn't be like that for everyone. Yeah, and I had no concerns because you can't compete with an agency that has failed and has closed its doors. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. 
Guess that's an advantage of sorts. <laughs> yeah. Um, I also dealt with non-competes when I was a salaried employee at an agency. There was enough time that elapsed between then and when I was doing work on my own that would have been irrelevant. And then subcontracting, um, I would sign on to non-competes. But like, even if I didn't, I wouldn't, as a matter of ethics, poach clients from an agency that was subcontracting me. So it's definitely something to keep an eye on but um for anyone thinking of pursuing this route like you'll be able to figure it out i think the main thing by and large that agencies are concerned with is that you don't turn around and poach their clients yeah exactly yeah and depending on the specialization of the agency i could see some of them having concerns about you know you even going for clients in the same niche if they're very highly targeted yeah, or if the agency covers a lot of ground. Like, for instance, I'm thinking of agencies I've subcontracted through, and there would almost be no way to compete because um, typically those agencies that are doing app dev and surrounding consulting and services, they want large engagements, the bigger the better, and that's mm -hmm. not what I want. So yeah. it was never competitive for me. Yeah, you definitely want to read. Like, when you sign a non-compete, you definitely want to read it. It's uh, it can be It can be rough. They can be overly broad at times. They, they, I, yeah, I mean, when I um, started working, I guess I can say this now because they've basically gone bust. Or, <laughs> But when I, I started doing some uh, training for a training company in China, so they wanted to sign me on a non-compete. It's not exactly the same thing, but certainly similar. And the original version of the, the um, contract they wanted to sign me on was I could not work with any of their clients for three years. And I was like, okay, that's not happening, <laughs> right? And, and of <laughs> course, my, my favorite line about such things is, oh, that's our standard contract. Mm. <laughs> Dear listener, if someone says that's in our standard contract, that is hogwash. <laughs> like there is no such thing as a standard contract. And or if there is, they can always change it. Contracts are written by people and people can change those things. And so I think we negotiated down to, I would not work with any of the clients they had like, for whom I had done work through them or through them. Anyway, like basically if they just happen to work with company ABCD, I can go work with them. But if I did training for ABCD through them, then I could not. Um, and that was only, uh, I think, I think we whittled it down to like six months um, as opposed to three years, which is probably lower than you're likely to get, but still, um, you know, way better than three years. But that was like more or less the only thing I looked at the contract other than the payment, because I wanted to make sure that I wouldn't be, my hands wouldn't be tied if such things happened. Yeah, I'll piggyback on that by saying that um, you can certainly negotiate those contracts. You can even mark them up and send them back. Like for the agency I have hit subscribe, we get a lot of, you know, quote, standard vendor contracts. And now for me, it's a matter of course that I read through and I mark things, you know, I cross things out and say, no, I'm not agreeing to this. What do you think of, you know, this counter proposal? And I got to tell you, they almost always say, oh, okay, that's fine. It's the same kind of, this is our standard, you know, this is our boilerplate. And I think you'd be surprised how many firms, except maybe enterprises with armies of lawyers, but, um, you know, of various sizes, firms that are amenable to you marking up their contracts. Yeah, sometimes it seems like they didn't even read it. <laughs> yeah. Oh, is is there anything if if you're working at an agency with an eye toward eventually going out on your own, are there things you should try to do or try not to do so that you'll gain the maximum amount of experience to get yourself ready for it? I um I would say that 
if you're if you decide so first of all just to kind of um, go back up to the top here, I guess, in the subject of getting started later in your career consulting, I think probably everybody would agree that an agency is a good stepping stone. And so when you're there at the agency, the thing I would suggest is to try to participate in all of the different aspects of um, like pre-sales to sales to service delivery, like get yourself as much experience there as possible. So try to participate in things like writing contracts, um, you know, doing pre-sales calls with uh, buyers and, and that sort of thing. Like look to fill in the gaps of your experience or the gaps in your experience if you can with uh, with things that you've never done before. 100%. That's exactly what ended up, I didn't do it consciously, but that's what ended up happening to me at the at the firm I went to and it was hugely beneficial. And to, to piggyback on that, um, if you can, it's not uncommon for there to be marketing opportunities for the firm that your name will be attached to. So if they are doing things like, you know, if they'll pay to have you go speak at a conference on their behalf or to write articles for a trade journal on their behalf or to blog for them and you can attach your name to it, then I say do it. Even if it's not billable, even if it's outside of your normal hours, it's like an on top of, uh, type of thing because that that was huge for me because I had a I was able to uh, start start from scratch with a reputation name recognition in the space even though I had done all of that stuff on the behalf of my firm still I was well known so it was it was if, if I didn't have that it would have been a lot more nerve wracking that was for sure so if you can st- sort of participate in marketing activities for the firm in a way that will increase your name recognition, I would say absolutely take every one of those opportunities you can. Yeah. And, you know, definitely exposure to all those sorts of things in an agency is one of the benefits. And I think another is uh, just being exposed to multiple types of projects over a shorter period of time. Uh, You know, developers that I know that work for large companies, you know, it's not uncommon for them to have been working on the same system for the tenure of their employment at that company, five years or eight years. Um, and so when it comes to, you know, their ability to look at lots of different types of systems and kind of assess needs and prescribe solutions, uh, I feel like they're more limited than people who have worked at agencies and worked in the the type of uh, velocity where you've got a lot of projects over time. Sometimes you're juggling multiple projects at once. Um, you know, you just get more exposure to that kind of thing. Yeah, definitely like uh, some organizational skill building on top of your, um, on top of your core, whatever your core skill is, like, you know, say you're like a Rails developer or something, you know, there's all of the things that go around that, that, you know, you know God forbid you're doing time tracking, but let's just say, <laughs> <laughs> you know, there's a way, there's a way to, um, you know, get get good at those things, the administrative stuff, I guess, that goes along with the, the job that it will probably follow you to a solo career. Right. I mean, we talk about it a lot on the show that if you're going to be freelancing, then you're really wearing two different hats, at least. One is your professional skill hat and the other is the running a business hat. And so, yeah, the more you can sort of see the business side of the way an agency runs, 
Um, and there will be things that you are like, wow, this is super smart. There'll be other things you're going to say, when I run my own business, I'm going to do it totally differently. And that is normal and reasonable. Um, and so just like, you can even keep, keep, take notes on this. By the way, it's also quite possible that you will enjoy the agency work. You just want to stick around there, right? Like, I mean, it's, it's a great stepping stone, but it's also okay if you say, huh, this is a good career cho choice and, and stay there and not have to worry about making sure to find clients and so forth. Yeah, absolutely true. So there's another there's another sort of situation that I see pretty commonly with folks who are um, of a certain age, <laughs> um, which is to for some for some reason life change, kids at home, uh, new kids at home, or whatever it is, uh, maybe a health thing with the spouse. It could be really anything, but some major life change, um, and they don't, and they they decide to leave the the full time job that requires going into the office and all of the politics and all of that. And they go solo because they want more flexibility and freedom and they want to uh, immediately, like immediately get there. But it's not that they didn't like their former employer. And what they a lot of times will do is turn around and, and consult for their former employer. So they kind of end up doing a similar thing or the same thing uh, with people who already trust them and know that they're good but they just want to they just want to change the nature of the the arrangement the nature of the relationship so that they've got more flexibility for some reason and that can be that that's a i think that's a pretty good uh sort of soft landing into consulting the potential issue is that you treat it you sort of treat it like you're just working remotely and you just treat it like a job and you don't do some of the other things that we were just talking about, all of the all of the, the things that are required of someone who's running a business, which is what you'd be doing, and just kind of like not doing any marketing, not getting, you know, not trying to attract new clients and just having this one whale client who you kind of got handed to you on a silver platter because they already trusted you and knew you. And you can kind of get lulled into a false sense of security that, oh, this is easy. Like, this is great. I can sit home and like, you know whatever, do laundry in between, I can change the laundry in between conference calls. And then, you know, when they're done and they're like, okay, thanks, Bob, we're all set now. And you're like, uh, where's my next <laughs> mortgage payment coming from? <laughs> but it can be a nice transition to, to do some part-time consulting for your, your previous employer while you are doing all of the marketing activities that you should do to attract new clients. That's, so that's personally, exactly I, uh, I feel like if I were going to do that. Um, and actually when I went freelance, that was something I did. I boomeranged the, my last employer into being a client, but there was sort of an implied moratorium on my services to begin with. Like we both teed this up as something that wasn't going to continue indefinitely. And I think that's kind of important because if it's open-ended, you can just kind of fall into this, um, pseudo employment arrangement. Um, but if you've kind of set an end date, either in your mind or explicitly, it forces you, it gives you that gentler landing, but forces you to start thinking about how you're going to go about client acquisition and normal business activities. 100%. Yeah, I mean, my, my first client was exactly as you described, Jonathan, that um, I was leaving my work. I mean, I was working in New York and I told them I was coming to Israel and they offered, and I told them I was going to start consulting. And they offered to be my first client. And so it's true that I treated it as like very, I didn't quite 
um, understand just what a gift it was. It was an amazing gift, but very <laughs> soon. But I don't know if it was my choice or their choice because it was so long ago. But I was only working for them twenty hours a week, and so that gave me twenty hours to go out and do, I guess, what we would now call business development and talk to people and have other projects. And so when things went south with them, when they closed the website, when they didn't want to have remote workers, I don't even remember what it was at this point, um, I had other clients sort of with whom I was also doing stuff that could easily fill in the gaps. Um, so in many ways, I see them as my initial investors, but it gave me the sort of cushion that I needed because I think I worked for them for about three, four years the cushion that I needed to really transition to this um, position of running a consulting business and trying to figure out how I'm going to do it and what I want to do. So I mother... think, oh, go ahead. Um, I think like the theme, the overarching theme here is one of like risk management. Um, so like moving from a sort of standard employment situation to an agency employment situation is a stepping stone, boomeranging your first, um, or your former employer to be your first client as a stepping stone. And I'd say another one there is to start moonlighting. Like a, a lot of times when people ask me about how to make a transition to working for yourself, freelancing, um, it, they're kind of explaining their situation. And I think of this like iron triangle of, of like mid-career freelancing that's like work-life balance, um, low risk, and fast pick any two. Like if <laughs> – Yeah, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. If you know, and so typically in the middle of your career, you're going to be necessarily minimizing risk, which means you're either going to be doing this slowly over the course of time while preserving some work life balance, or if you're going to be doing it fast, it's, um, you know, that you're really doing the nine to five and then the five to nine kind of religiously. And uh, moonlighting can be another great option there as well. Um, that was kind of how I dipped my toe into the waters originally because i'm a pretty uh, risk averse type person um so that's another option i, I figured i'd mention as a, as a good way to get started yeah earlier i said that, that it occurred to me that i could freelance but instead i went to an agency and the reason it occurred to me was because one of the other guys i worked with did the same thing i did moonlighted and it was um it, i could see even though i was single i could see i was like i don't want that because he was doing exactly what you did and it, and it it was good for him. It just wasn't good for me. It might be good for some of the listeners, but it, it's, uh, it was a little bit, in my opinion, it was a little bit grueling because, you know, you're, you're working a full-time job. And then, uh, on the weekend he would go in one day a week on the weekend to work, you know, like a six hour day at the, you know, on site at this place near his house. And then every once in a while during the work day, he would, or it was more than every once in a while, something would go wrong with his moonlighting client during the week. And <laughs> he'd have to, it was not uncommon for him to have to like blow off dinner with his wife because he was married and, and go to go to fix something that went down in the middle of the day. And I was like, Yikes. yeah, it was, it was, a, it was good for him. It was fine for him. Like it, it worked with his relationship. His wife was a nurse and, you know, she wasn't, I don't think she was always uh, home normal hours or, you, you know, nine to five uh, or whatever. Um, so it worked out. And I, I agree that it's a, a good approach if you've got the constitution for it, you get the relationship set up for it. Here's another idea uh, that I recommend to people a lot. I don't have any evidence for this one. It just seems theoretically like a good idea, which um, is something I wish I had done uh, a little bit more when I was getting ready to go solo, which is to build up an audience for your new thing before you leave. 
And that would be, and if I was going to pick a specific medium, I would say start a mailing list that's that for people that are going to be in the space that you think you're going to go to. And this might be unrealistically difficult because I don't know, it feels a little chicken or egg to me, but if you can, if you can pick sort of a thing about your job that you really like, a thing that you really want to focus on, it's a sliver of what uh, you do at, it's a sliver of what your employer does or it's a sliver of what your agency does. You know, like maybe the agency does, um, I don't know, like, like digital marketing. They're like a digital agency and you just want to really focus in on, on like building node modules or something like that, helping people build node modules. Like it's, it's in your area of expertise, but it's hyper specific. Uh, it would be, I don't know if it's possible, but it would be amazing, amazingly helpful if you could start a mailing list around that and create a community of people who are like, uh, into that ideally they would be buyers so if you were you know in this particular example maybe you're planning on, on uh, I don't know selling training to uh, other node developers or you're planning on writing a node mailing list for startups or something like that so for CTOs of startups that are I don't know whatever it's like something of interest to an audience because you're you're I, you know hopefully you're gonna be doing that once you go solo anyway and it's the kind of thing that you can do in your uh, free time without too much effort that it, it kind of get that ball rolling before you've gone out on your own. So again, I don't know if it's possible, but I know that if, if you're in a full-time job and you had like 500 to a thousand people on a mailing list and they were like into what you were writing, you'd be in way better shape than if you were like, just, just hitting the ground cold. Yeah, I, I would love that idea. Back of that. Um, <laughs> it, uh, I sort of, did something like that. I mean, I just, I've had a blog for years and years and years and I had a pretty substantial following on the blog by the time I was on my own. And that blog, even before I went on my own was a source of random inbound opportunities. You know, people would reach out to me and ask if I'd do coaching in this or come in and help them implement that. So having that audience out there, um, absolutely helps uh, especially if you're better at curating it than I was, um, you know, helps you bring work into the pipeline. So I think that's a great suggestion. I mean, it's sometimes possible, and I'm not sure uh, how much, like to to ratchet down to part-time work. Like some places are willing to do that. They might get a little suspicious and or angry if you're also moonlighting slash consulting on the side. It totally depends on the sort of relationship you have with your current employment. But, you know, if you can maybe say like take a day a week and do it, you know, work four days a week and then mm. spend one day a week doing consulting. Uh, I'll never forget. Uh, Rob Walling had this great talk in uh, Stockholm, I guess it was in 2017. Wow. Was that long ago? Anyway, where he talked about uh, using products to buy out his consulting time. And I've, I've had that mental model since then of, okay, I have, you know, blocks of time and I'm making a certain amount of money now and I can replace it with something else. So here, this is like, you know, even before, sort of a, a, a prequel to what he was describing, where you can use consulting to buy out your full-time employment, again, assuming that's possible, and not everyone has that luxury. Yeah, we're getting a little theoretical here, but I do, I, I do think that it's similar to the idea of creating a mailing list. If you, were, if you were able to do that while you were still gainfully employed, uh, I, would, I would actually flip 180 degrees a piece of advice that I normally give people who are already consulting so 
usually when people are already consulting and they come to me and they're like, ah, I'm on this hamster wheel. I can't get ahead. Um, I just this famine cycle. I can't take it anymore. Uh, they've usually always been offering like custom project work basically. You know, it's like high level, oops, fire alarm action here. Uh, I'll just finish this thought though. Um, <laughs> the, <laughs> the idea is that they would build a product ladder down from that because they're already selling something. It's just, they're selling this really big, hard to, hard to, uh, hard to sell thing. But now if you, if you're starting, just starting out, start from the bottom of the product ladder, create the mailing list, then create like, uh, an ebook or create like a product ladder from the bottom up based on your mailing list. And, uh, and then at the top of that, you can start offering consulting, but you've created like a product business on the way up. And you could do a lot of that while you're already at an employer or still at an employer. One one other yeah. thing that people sometimes talk about um, is, and this is this is a sort of changing direction a little bit. Um, I know that many people, when they were going to start freelancing, made sure to have a whole bunch of savings in the bank, because it can be a bit of a wild ride. By which we mean not profitable, not income generating for the <laughs> first few months, and you want to make sure that you can pay all those bills. So if you're planning to make the switch, let's say six months, a year from now, try putting away a bit of extra money. I mean, I know people talk about having a runway of like six months of, there's, of, of expenses in the bank just in case. Um, and that seems um, very prudent, hard to do, uh, but very smart if you can pull it off. Yeah, I definitely will. Having a little bit of runway will, I, I mean, in my mind, one of the biggest benefits of that is it helps you have an alternative to taking crappy projects and getting stuck early in that hamster wheel of bad projects that just lead to other bad projects. Um, and part of, you know, getting to where you have good clients that are paying you good rates is being able to say no to what look like obviously bad clients that want to pay you low rates. Um, and so not having any savings and not really, you know, just being in complete scramble mode of I have to accept any work at all that comes across my plate uh, kind of sets you up in a in a bad spot right off the bat. Yeah, I would. Um, I'm thinking I'm trying to think of what I did. I think I had built myself out some runway um, when I first went freelance. Certainly when we were starting my agency recently hit subscribe that we did, we planned on you know, what if this isn't even profitable or what if it doesn't make as much as we thought? So one thing, if you're so inclined and you kind of like, you know, modeling things out is to make some assumptions like, okay, what if I don't make any money for six months? Now that's kind of improbable, but it could happen. But, you know, what if I only replace a quarter of my income? So you can sort of tune uh, the point at which you think you're ready to make the jump and relieve some pressure on yourself. Because I think what you don't want to do is you know, be working some nine to five job that you then decide one day that you've had enough of your boss and you quit. <laughs> and now you have to figure out some way to replace all that income. Like that's super hard to do. But if it's something kind of easier, like, well, I'll make this flip when I replace a quarter of my income, you can start working in your spare time to line up clients. And if you line up a few over the, you know, next uh, two, three months, then you might be able to make that jump, especially if you have that runway. Yeah. And speaking of having that runway while also being, you know, trying to moderate risk, um, you know, you want to be realistic with yourself about how long that runway is going to last and about 
how far down that runway you can afford to get before you need to start thinking about, is this actually going to work or do I need to look back for another, another full-time job? Mm-hmm. Uh, and knowing, kind of knowing your bailout conditions early, I think helps a lot with being able to come to terms that you do need to bail out. Uh, because if you're trying to evaluate what the conditions are when you're already knee deep in it, it can be really hard to, you know, to tell yourself that, yeah, this hasn't worked and I need to get out. And if you've set kind of your boundary conditions earlier, when it, you know, when you're less emotionally attached to, I've got to make this work, uh, it can be easier to see that you've crossed that boundary condition and go, well, okay, this round didn't work. I need to need to find another job so that I can maintain stability and take another stab at this in the future. That is a great suggestion. I mean, I, I've never actually done that. And in retrospect, I wish I had because I know myself. And if that runway started to run out, my thoughts wouldn't be, oh, well, I guess this isn't going to work out. It would have been to <clears throat> kind of double down and say, I, you know, I can't quit. I don't want to fail. But if you tee it up from the beginning that I'm going to run an experiment and here are my exit, you know, criteria in one direction or the other, this is all part of your plan. Obviously, it's not the, you know, ideal plan, but it's part of what you were setting up. And I think knowing myself, it would be a lot easier to make that decision if I had kind of had the foresight to uh, reason about it up front. I am shaking my head saying how smart that is. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Like, I mean, so I tried doing a startup, I guess it was already like 12, 13 years ago. And, you know, I had people working with me on it. Like we didn't get any funding, but I spent lots of time at meetings with VCs and on and on. And I was sort of expecting there to be this very obvious point at which it's great or it's terrible. And it was just neither. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and yeah. I had to sort of make yeah. the decision. I'm spending way too much time and money on this and I need to actually be making money. This is, this is nuts, but it took a long time to be for me to figure that out. If I'd set some sort of watermark in how much time, how much money I'm spending on it before like getting an investment, which is not something I'm interested in now anyway, then yeah, I, I, Oh, that's super smart. Yeah. I mean it, and it's hard to do because it can feel like, in some ways you're planning to fail or planning for failure, I guess. And, you know, you, it, we all, I think have a resistance to doing that. You want to, you want to believe that things are going to work out and that you've got a good plan and you're going to be able to execute on the plan. Um, but, you know, just speaking from my experience with the agency that we ran for 10 or 12 years with middling success at best, um, you know, I am convinced that if from the get-go we had defined some bailout conditions, that there is no way that we would have gone for 10 or 12 years with the spinning wheels that we had. Uh, you know, we, we it would have prompted us to look at, okay, yeah, this didn't work the way that we hoped it did, and we have better options that we could go and do, and that would improve our lives greatly if we did them. Uh, and we didn't have the, you know, we didn't have the forethought to have set out any of that. And so it instead was a decade of spinning wheels. And, you know, it wasn't so terrible that it was obvious that, oh, I've got to get out of here today. It was just, eh, you know, things aren't great. They kind of suck, but we're trying to make them better. 
uh, and just kind of got stuck in that cycle for a long time. I'd say in a way, um, just keeping your head above water on a long enough timeline is kind of the worst state to be in. Cause if you totally face plant, um, that's pretty quick feedback mm-hmm. and you can kind of mm-hmm. course correct. And if it takes off, obviously that's the desired outcome. But if you're perpetually, you know, on the border of, is this working or is this not, it becomes, I think probably hard to make an in situ decision. Yeah, it really is. Um, so, and so I think the flip side of that coin of, you know, know what your bailout conditions are is also, you know, know what success looks like to you and be able to, you know, judge when you're kind of in between, uh, what you think of as success and what you think of as, oh, this has totally failed. And when you are in between there, uh, you know, that's really time to take a hard look and decide, you know, what, what you want to do. I'm wondering if we could like recommend any kind of framework for this. Cause I'm imagining a listener who's working a job 40 years old or so and thinking of freelancing, like, what does that look like? I'm just trying to think if I have a good mental definition uh, any of you guys have thoughts off the cuff as to like what would be, you know, a success or a, a failure situation? Well, success is, I would say, having the same salary as before. Um, like that's like just being able to do that, like getting out of your and, and when I say salary, it's like, you know, salary benefits and everything or your net, let's say, um, is going to be the same as before. Ideally, it would be better. But. If you can be freelancing, if you enjoy the, and there is stress in doing the freelance stuff, the business stuff, but you're making the same amount of money, you at the very least have greater flexibility um, and you're doing something that you enjoy more. Again, that's, that's, you know, that's the theory. So on a, on a mon- on a, if you want to put a money value on it, you should be making at least as much as before. Makes sense. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I think I agree with that in the abstract, but I think it also kind of depends on what your goals are. You know, like we talked about earlier, some people, their goal in making this transition may be, you know, predominantly about flexibility and uh, control. And, you know, maybe you're willing to sacrifice some monetary compensation in order to gain those things. Um, And so... you know, I think that success framework really largely depends on what are your goals for getting into freelancing, which kind of also depend on what are your goals for life in general. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, so, so all I could to say, see, I think it's kind of hard. <laughs> so I could see maybe like two vectors, I guess. You know, what um, what income do you need to be content? Um, and stable and then shooting for that and then maybe to set a time bound. So I want to get to that by, you know, this particular amount of time, which might vary per person. And then maybe there's some kind of um, success or fail based on you lay out the reasons that you wanted to go do this. And then is your life living up to that? Like if it's more freedom that you wanted, but what you have is that you're juggling three very demanding, horrible clients you might not be living up to your success criteria of what you want your life to be like. Yeah, that's very true. Absolutely. Let, let me ask a, a different question, which is, I know that many high tech firms, if you go to apply to them for work, there's age discrimination. 
right? Like, and 40 is often quoted as the number of, you know, as the age where if you try to get a job, they'll look at you funny, like, why are you coming here? Um, especially if it's an entry-level thing or beginning sort of thing. Um, do you think there's any of that in starting to freelance at 40-ish? Um, I've actually found, I mentioned this before we started recording, I found that um, my uh, authority as a consultant has grown over time as I've gotten older. <laughs> because, And I don't think it's just the, the gray hair, but it's the fact that people say, wow, you've been doing this for so long. So whereas they might be hesitant to hire me as a full-timer, they're eager to hire me as a consultant. Can you guys hear me? Yep, yep. Cool. I'm, I'm in my car now with the fire trucks behind me, so hopefully they won't make too much noise. Oh my god! <laughs> yeah, it's not I'm your sure house, is it? No, no, no. The office. Okay. I mean, the podcast um, is important, but, but not that important. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't want my first day back in a long time to get interrupted, so. Rudely. <laughs> Um, but speaking of the gray hair thing, I can really chime in on that. And, you know, I think, you know, being in the software space and seeing, you know, they, they keep making uh, kids that will work for pizza that are <laughs> whip smart and they know all the newest stuff. And for folks in the age group that we're talking to, if, if you whether it's software development or, or some other kind of implementation work that you've been doing at your job, it's highly likely that you've picked up some wisdom along the way that you might not even consciously think of it's just it's just the kind of you know you're in a meeting and somebody says something and you're immediately like oh that makes my spider sense tingle or uh, we tried that once and uh, there were these landmines we should watch out for those if we're going to try again but that's sort of like that kind of that kind of smarts that that usually only come from putting in years and years uh if you are, you know, if you're at that stage and you've got those kinds of that kind of expertise, but you're doing, you're still getting paid in your head. You're getting paid for the implementation work of what you know, coding. Let's say, um, if you're going to go solo, you you really don't want to compete against a 25 year old uh, for for business or for jobs. Whether you're doing, um, whether you're trying to get another full time job or you're trying to start a consulting business, I would I would urge somebody in that situation to take advantage of the fact that they're older and position themselves as someone who has the big picture and has the, the kind of war stories that come with it and de-emphasize the implementation work, move more into advisory things, which if we're talking about consulting, consulting is like answering questions. People want to consult with you. They come and ask you questions, you give them answers and it decreases risk for them. So uh, I, if you were, if someone listening to this was you know, is in a situation like that and is thinking about going solo. Think hard about what you bring to the table that some 25 year old is, just can't, you know, and, and emphasize that in your marketing and outreach and all of those sorts of things. Um, so for me, based on my experience, both kind of in the corporate world as an individual contributor, as a manager exec, um, and then consulting, I kind of have this sense that you relieve some of the pressure of age discrimination by going off on your own. So I think there's this kind of rightly or wrongly, there's this expectation that you're going to be one of these people coding for pizza in your 20s. And then you kind of move up the career ladder. And maybe that's towards some kind of like architect technical fellow track. Maybe that's toward management. And then there's a third option, which is that you go off on your own and consult. Because as a uh, wage software developer, you kind of hit this 
I mean, unless you're working at firms uh, for equity out in Silicon Valley or maybe like high frequency trading firms, you kind of hit this um, ceiling of salary. And so there's only a limited number of ways that you can get above that and going off on your own to consult or to freelance is one of them. So my experience has been that there's maybe almost kind of an expectation that a career of software development might very well in your late 30s, early 40s, uh, naturally move towards being on your own. I, I remember when I worked at HP, uh, just after graduating from college, someone explained that, I mean, and this is, HP has changed quite a bit since then, but he said that the people who worked there were all like me, recent graduates, or people who are middle-aged, because in the middle, everyone went out to work on startups and try to be a consultant. And when people wanted <laughs> to settle down a bit, then they came back to a big company where <laughs> they could just sort of, you know, have, have a good life. Um, and obviously this has stuck with me very many years later, but there's, there's some truth to that, that, um, you know, th there are people, uh, who just, you know, aren't interested in consulting and just want to have a nice, you know, work, work for a big corporation and get a paycheck. And there's nothing wrong with that per se. Yeah. And I think the anecdotal evidence that I've seen kind of suggests that age discrimination, you know, in favor of younger people is sort of uh, concentrated in certain types of companies and clients mm. and that very new young businesses, you know, that might be more common than in older established, you know, large businesses that, uh, you know, appreciate somebody having been around several blocks before and being able to... Uh, you know, bring experience to the table to help them reduce risk. Uh, and, and I think it is is probably a, a risk reduction thing. You know, uh, the smaller, newer companies are often in the, you know, let's ignore risk and move quickly phase, uh, whereas older, more established players have more to lose if, you know, they don't manage risk. So one thing that occurs to me that's probably worth touching on briefly in in a conversation like this is a lot of people ask me about things like uh, health insurance, which is kind of a mm. mainly U.S. concern, but uh, benefits. You know, uh, there's a lot of worry around if you have been working for an employer for 20 years, there's all these things that the employer has been doing for you that are um, uh, mm. sort of uh, daunting to think about doing on your own. My experience with that has been that it's not as bad as it seems like it'll be once you dive in, like for the US, like health insurance is more expensive, but you have options, retirement savings, that kind of thing. So I was wondering what you guys thought of that. I 100% agree with that. I, I hear people all the time throw up that objection, like, oh, well, I, I don't want to go solo because they've got my health insurance. I'm like, just go to bluecross.com and buy health insurance. It's not that hard. You know, it's expensive, but you know, you're going to stay at a job that you don't like for the rest of your life. So you don't have to foot that bill. It doesn't make any sense. That, that's a, that's a real hot button for me. It drives me nuts when people throw that up as like their excuse. I'm like, Oh, okay. <laughs> don't take control of your life. Fine. <laughs> well, I mean, like it's, and, and, it's not that hard. It might not be hard, but it can be very expensive. Like I've definitely known people who hesitated a lot before going solo because they had to deal with the, uh, you know, the, the, the individual health insurance market in the U.S. Yeah, yeah. I mean, 
Sure. And, you know, if we're talking about 40 somethings, I mean, I probably pay 1500 bucks a month for, for health insurance for wife and two kids. That's nothing to sneeze at, but I don't know. It's, it's, it's just not complicated, you know, just like set yourself up, make the money and pay it. I don't know. It's so a here's, lot less taxes. Um, <laughs> like one exercise that I would say is, um, really valuable if you're thinking about doing this, um, and going off on your own. When you're an employee, you think of your uh, employer as, you know, dispersing a lot of the cost of um, health insurance and payroll taxes and all these types of things, which is true. They absolutely do that. But there's a reason that when you quit a job making, you know, $50 an hour, 100000 a year, uh, you don't go and bill $50 an hour. You bill way higher. It's because you're covering all those costs that they've been covering. So one really helpful thing for me at least was to go and sit down and sort of estimate or even directly find out what are all these different things like specifically what are these expenses how much is your employer covering of your health insurance retirement etc and when you kind of map that out you can walk it up to like what you would need to charge in terms of you know say 80 percent billable time or whatever you're doing Uh, how would you need to price things to cover those and then it's just, you know, you're covering them yourself because you're earning more uh, net income or gross income. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. Like, find out what the costs are. And they are high. You know, but, well, you know, what's the alternative? Go without? No. Uh, stay at the job? Maybe not. I mean, I suppose it's basically this interview, our podcast is that you've decided to leave, so you're thinking about it at least. So yeah, I, I, that's great advice. Find out what find out what all is involved, and the fully loaded cost of an employee. Can, what is it like? Something like seventy five percent over and above the salary on average. Something I don't like remember the figure. It's it's like it's really high. It's higher than a lot of you listening would probably think. Like your um, your employer is covering a lot of stuff, but you know you price your services accordingly when you go off on your own because now you have to cover that stuff. And I'll, I'll just add on, on behalf of everyone living outside of the United States. Ha! Ha! <laughs> <laughs> you silly people and your silly health insurance system or lack of system. But there you go. Yeah. Um, Not cool, man. Not <laughs> <laughs> um, we've been going at this for a while, so I think we should probably uh, ra- wrap up with some final comments and head off to picks. Anyone have anything... Any insights that they want to share before we, uh, before we do that? Uh, I think I'd throw it out there just holistically that if you sort of break things down and lay out a plan and, and take some of the advice here about how to make that plan, whether it's the expenses you'll incur or your success and exit criteria, on balance, it's really not as scary and hard as you think. Um, like, you can do it. Go for it. Yeah, I would, I would agree. I think a lot of people underestimate the the amount to which just competent execution of plans that, you know, are easily understood that are widely published uh, come into play in these type of things. Excellent. I'll just, uh, I'll just add also that it helps a lot. I mean, we talked about this a lot on other episodes, but the whole idea of like having a particular niche and expertise, by the time you reach 40 ish, you probably have one and you should milk that for all it's worth because people will appreciate and you'll be able to find clients who, uh, who, who, who want to use that expertise you have. Um, all right, let's, uh, let's go on to picks then. Uh, Jonathan, welcome back. And do you have any picks? Yes. 
Yes, first pick is uh, a book called Flawless Consulting by Peter Block. Um, it's it's mostly about the execution of the consulting piece and not what we've been talking about, all the business stuff. But it's a book I wish I had read, before, you know, 20 years ago. Uh, it's really, really good. It talks about three different styles of consulting and the relative pros and cons of them. And if you are thinking about going solo and actually being a consultant, it helps to know what's involved. And this is by far the best book I've ever read on it. Um, I will also point to um, the other podcast I'm on, The Business of Authority. We talk about the sort of brand building stuff and picking a niche like Ruben just suggested and, um, you know, uh, all the marketing things associated with uh, going out on your own and how to define that um, for yourself. And, uh, yeah, I think that would be pretty helpful for anybody interested in this episode. Excellent. Eric, what do you got for us? Um, so a couple today. The first one I'll pick is a book called The E-Myth Revisited, which this conversation reminds me of a lot, um, specifically in the sense that I think a lot of people, whether you're working for an employer or an agency, um, you have, I, I think he calls it an entrepreneurial spasm. So you think of yourself as an entrepreneur, you go, <laughs> you know, I could do this much better than my boss. I quit. I'm out of here. And he says that this is like an entrepreneurial moment. It doesn't make you an entrepreneur. And so he talks about um, like structuring a business and what you're going to be doing in a way that is a little bit more deliberate. So, I mean, I won't dive too far into it, but if you're thinking of going off on your own, you'll get some value out of uh, listening to this and considering these points. The second thing I'll pick is this random YouTube channel I came across, like pure entertainment value. Like this guy's just really amusing to me. Um, he's he sort of started out with like programming related topics and now he does a lot of stuff. Uh, for hit subscribe, we're thinking of kind of building out more of a, div, uh, a video based offering. And so I've been like mass consuming YouTube to see who's good at it. And uh, I've been consistently enjoying this guy's content. His name is uh, Jarvis and you know I'll throw a link to his channel in there. Uh, hopefully you like it too. Uh, that's all I got. Okay. Jeremy, what about you? Uh, yeah, I've just got one this week, which is one that I've mentioned uh, recently. Uh, Company of One by Paul Jarvis uh, that I'm still recommending as maybe an indication of how quickly I get through my reading. Uh, but I'm a little over halfway through the book. It's really good. Uh, I think it's going to be very applicable to anybody who is interested in getting into working for themselves. Uh just talks a lot about you know how you might structure your business, how you approach work-life balance, um, all that kind of thing. Just a lot of stuff that really resonates with me in that book. And that's all I got today. Okay, and I guess I've got one pick. I don't think I've picked it before. Hopefully not. And if so, well, then I'm picking it again. Uh, it's this book that I uh, read recently called The Prodigal Tongue. Prodigal? Prodigal Tongue. The Love-Hate Relationship Between American and British English. Um... So I, I just was in London for a week, and uh, it was great fun uh, in all sorts of different ways, including the fact that, you know, at the end of every conversation, someone was leaving the room, cheers, mate, cheers, mate, and it sounds much better in their accent. Um, so anyway, <laughs> if, if you if you are amused by that as I am, and if you're sort of curious as to the differences between different kinds of English and why Americans feel inferior and the Brits feel like they're being encroached upon uh, by Americans, and what is and is not truly British versus American versus other kinds of Englishes, 
great, great fun uh, to, to read through with lots and lots of examples by, if I'm not mistaken, an American professor who's been living in the UK for many years. So uh, lots of fun stories in there as well. And I guess that is it for this episode. Thanks, guys, as usual. Thanks to our listeners. And we'll be back next week on The Freelancer Show. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.